Hey, cuz, welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, the show that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era, and we check out some of the stories behind these songs. And today, we're chatting with John Hall, founder of the band Orlean. How good it is! Hi there, I'm Claude Call in the Southern Studio, and I hate to disappoint you, but there is no promo and no trivia this time around, because I have got something special for ye today. Musician and former U.S. Representative John Hall is on the show today. And maybe that name doesn't pop out at you right away, but John is the founder of the band Orleans. He and his then-wife, Johanna, wrote most of their big hits in the 1970s, and a few years later, he left the Orleans to concentrate on a solo career. That move led to his putting a lot of time into environmental causes, which put him on the path to a political career for a while where he did a couple of terms as the representative from the 19th District of New York State in the Hudson Valley Catskills area. Since retiring from politics, he is still active in a bunch of worthy causes. Plus, he wrote a book about his musical and political career. He is touring both with Orleans and as a solo act. And when we spoke a couple weeks ago via Skype, he was in the middle of a move from upstate New York to Tennessee. And despite all that, I think it comes through that he's a, he's a thoughtful guy, and he didn't just throw canned answers my way. So, all kinds of busy, and he was still kind enough to spend some genuine time with me, and I cannot thank him enough for it. Okay, enough yapping. Here's me and John. So, you, you, you've had a, a huge, huge, very, very career, and it's not even over yet. I mean, you, you, you've, <laughs> you've been the hope, rock star. Hope you, not. You've written for, for live theater. You have, you, you have, you have, you've been in congress you're back on tour you you played with some of the big names and 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 that that's outstanding out astounding even and and it's got it, it must have been a heck of a ride for you it has been a wonderful ride i mean there have been ups and downs as the song on my new record says it's all up and down from here but um yeah i just you know i started playing piano when i was four and a half and and next thing you know i'm you know this far down the road. So <laughs> it's, um, it's all happened organically, I think, uh, not to mix metaphors, but it's, uh, you know, it's been a case of being in the right place at the right time, doing the work, showing up, you know, having some talent, you know, showing up and doing the best I can in whatever situation I'm in, and then just seeing where, where that leads. And I guess it's been a career and a life of tangents and, um, like the political thing was a tangent, you know, my working in theater was a tangent. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff of the no nukes thing was another tangent. Um, I, uh, you know, I don't mind trying new things and, and that's a good way to sort of find out what else life uh, has to offer. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things I've noticed, at least as for your more recent work I, and, and, only because I don't necessarily know the stories behind some of the older material is that your life experience seems to have really informed some of the writing that you've been doing lately. You know, I, I was listening to the new album, uh, Reclaiming My Time, which obviously has its roots in, in political, in the, in the political arena. Um, but, but even just the lyrics that I've heard from there uh, really seem to be colored by some of your personal experiences. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Well, you know, uh, somebody said to me uh, a while back uh, something about being a topical songwriter. And I said, well, everything's a topic. Dance with me is a topic. It's like, you know, hey, honey, the music's 
the music's beautiful and I want to, you know, have you in my arms and let's move across this floor together, you know, or, or we've been together since way back when, but you're still the one is a, is a topic. And, uh, you know, in terms of Orleans, time passes on and people have told me that they, that they, that that song got them through their father's death or that, or that, uh, you know, dance with me. I've had many people, including a member of Congress. So from the other side of the aisle for me, he was, <laughs> riding up in an elevator and said, did you write dance with me? I said, yes. And he said, that's, that was the first song my wife and I danced to at our wedding. And you just don't know what, you know, what's going to mean something in particular to somebody. So whether it's the first song on our very first album, it all comes back the first Orleans record. Um, or whether it's alone too long, you know, there, uh, there are songs that, uh, that verge on the environmental political topics all kinds of interpersonal, you know, relationship stuff, of course. And, um, you know, there's a song on this record about veterans, which yes, I, you know, I wrote it actually for a veteran friend of mine, a Vietnam vet friend who's uh, rest his soul, um, who had real bad PTSD. And, but I wound up serving in Congress on the veterans affairs committee and, and doing maybe my most important work there for, for veterans as chair of the subcommittee on veterans disabilities. So it all comes to the, the ideas come from somewhere. They can come from reading a newspaper. They can come from overhearing a conversation at the next table at a restaurant. You, you know, I just try to keep my ears open and uh, and be ready. Yeah, it, it's interesting though because you you were still relatively young when you wrote. Let's let's start with "Still the One," okay? Mm-hmm. And that <clears throat> is a song that you know, people will use for like their anniversaries when they're like, you know, 600 years old and, and that, and that kind of thing. And, and, you know, it, I, I remember hearing once, you know, something like you, you kind of have to be sad to write a sad song and you have to be in love to write a love song. And, and how do you write a, what is essentially a retrospective song without having had that, that retrospective vision? <laughs> well, Johanna and I had been married for, I think it was six or seven years at that point. Um, you know, seven, if it's, uh, uh, like the record came out in 76, but I think maybe we might've written that song in 75, but a, a neighbor downstairs had asked, uh, a neighbor downstairs who was divorcing her husband, who turned out to be in pretty rough shape, uh, with an addiction that was uh, making their marriage impossible. Um, asked Johanna if she could write a song about people staying together because there was so many songs about people breaking up. And uh, Johanna wrote that entire lyric for Still the One on the back of an envelope and handed it to me, and I wrote the music for it and uh, pretty quickly. Uh, so, but it, it comes from experience, from shared experience. I mean, Johanna and I both certainly had our parents, you know, well, Johanna's case, her parents divorced, and but, you know, stayed in touch and, you know, had a good relationship and, and my parents married and stayed married for 67 years. Wow. So I may not be that person, you know, evidently I'm not as, as you might guess from the song future ex-wife, mm-hmm. but, um, but, you know, we, we learned Johanna and I and all songwriters, I think, you know, learn to put themselves in a character or to write as if we had the experience that we might not have yet. And I guess does some of that come from your your prior experience writing for a live theater? 
Yeah, actually it does. Uh, good observation. Yeah, I was given, you know, songs and sometimes I wrote one off-Broadway, well, a play that ran in the theater of, theater of the Living Arts in Philadelphia, never made it to off-Broadway, which was where it was supposed to go. But I wrote 22 songs in two weeks and, and uh, I'd be working upstairs in the office and the cast would be rehearsing on the stage and somebody would come up and say, we need that song for the boxing scene in five minutes. <laughs> I'd be like, okay, I'll finish it right now. And uh, it, it taught me a couple things. One is to be able to write in character. And the other is to be able to write on demand, which in Nashville happens a lot. People, um, you know, make an appointment to write. Like t- tomorrow at 10 o'clock, I'm writing with so-and-so. And I was from the Woodstock, you know, bolt of lightning. You know, let's stay up all night and see if inspiration strikes school of writing and uh, i've learned that if you practice your craft more often if you sit down with the intention of writing with your guitar or your keyboard or whatever your instrument is that the art shows up more often if you're working on the craft i i I hear so many stories and and in doing research for the songs for this for this show that that so many artists will say this song came to me in a flash i got it down in about 15 and you said pretty much the same thing about still the one is like yeah well you know johanna gave me the lyrics and i was able to knock something out in a heartbeat and it's a song that has definitely endured year after year after year i know it got used in commercials it got used by uh, abc television for a while it got used in a couple of political campaigns, whether you wanted it to or not, <laughs> you know, and, and, and it just, it still sticks with somebody. And even when I was, you know, I, I jacked up my knee a little while ago and I've been going to physical therapy and I was telling the physical therapist that I was going to be talking to you. And, you know, he didn't recognize the name right away. But when I said, you know, oh, he's from Orleans and he did this song, da, da, da. He's like, oh yeah, yeah. Dance with me. That was my wife thing. And, and so everybody's got like one of those cool stories and it always not always but frequently seems to be the songs that come in that appear to come in out of nowhere you know not and that's not to denigrate the songs that that do come out of crafting because i i think one could argue like cheryl crow's first album pretty much happened that way um so you know it, it definitely happens both ways as far as you know what works well and what what doesn't but I, I find that, that that kind of interesting that you've got that dichotomy going on. Let me, let me ask you this. I mean, you because you were writing for theater and because you were writing for some other artists, and including Janis Joplin, who kind of got you the, the rock and roll cred you needed for that sort of thing, is I'm a little bit of a control freak. So, you know, I it's it to me, it would feel kind of weird if I created something and then handed it off to somebody else to yeah. to basically make the vision come true and do you do, does that ever bother you yeah of course you know i think most songwriters well i don't know if that's true i as a songwriter always thought my version was best <laughs> <laughs> and why did they change that melody or why did they do, rearrange it and uh you know you just have to learn some humility and and i uh you know i i was just really grateful that um uh, of course, that Janice did Half Moon, and uh, that was the first song Johanna and I wrote together at all. You know, not just the first one that somebody recorded or somebody famous recorded. That was her recommendation, but, was it not? That Janice, yeah, Janice asked, asked for us to write that song. Uh, and uh, Johanna was a journalist and was doing an interview with her, and 
Janice heard a couple songs of mine and said, you know, I like the music, but the lyrics sound like a young man writing. And I said, well, of course they do. And uh, that was me. And um, and she said to Johanna, you're a woman, you're a writer. Why don't you write something with, you know, with John that a woman would want to sing? And so that's where that song came from. And, uh, you know, the music came really quickly. I uh, was still the one also. I wrote the music to still the one in 15 minutes. But it's not always like that. We uh, would dance with me. I was playing the, the guitar part, the melody and the chords. Uh, I think it was a Sunday morning in our home up there in Saugerties, New York, near Woodstock. And um, and she was making coffee. Johanna was, and she called from the kitchen. Sounds like dance with me. You know, I was going, I was playing da 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 da, and and I called back. Can we think of something more original? And of course, she was right. You know, but we wrote the first verse to it then, and then hit a writer's block. And two months later, we're driving back from an Orleans show, beginning very you know early Orleans in Ithaca, New York. And she's sitting in the passenger seat while I'm driving. And she says, pick the beat up and kick your feet up and start scribbling on the back of the, huh. the envelope. And, uh, you know, that song was done by the time we got home. But it took two months of gestation to get to that point. So, yeah, sometimes you just got to let it percolate a little bit and then it finally comes forth. So it was that was that pretty much the process for you guys where she would write lyrics and you would provide music or with her? Well, in the, you know, with Dance With Me, I wrote the music first. I had the entire music for Dance With Me. Uh, and in fact, I played it for Larry Hoppin. He said, you better finish that. That sounds like a hit. Uh, and, you know, it just you never, never really know. We wrote a lot of songs simultaneously, just, you know, sitting down with her with her legal pad to write on and me with my guitar or piano and, um, and writing the words and the, and the music simultaneously. Um, and sometimes it's words first, sometimes it's music first, but, um, there's no wrong way to do it. So whatever works for a given song. And, uh, one of the things that I, that I've always, always, and this is going back to when I was younger and, 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 you know, still in, I guess, middle or high school at that point and, and hearing some of the the Orleans songs is I really like the harmonies that you guys came up with. And, and, and how, how did you guys put that together? Well, we listened to a lot of the same things. Uh, I, I grew up, uh, you know, hearing was folk music, you know, when I was really young and then the Beach Boys and the Beatles and uh, and other groups that I mean, you know, if you listen to Crosby, Stills and Nash, or you know any of the great harmony groups, the doo-wop bands, the Times, the the guys that did Miss Grace, the Giant Giants, my song Miss Grace. I mean, they come from a tradition that's very vocally oriented, and and I sang in church as did Larry and Lance Hoppin, and uh, it's just so we you know it's a lot of fun harmonizing with other other people's voices and um so when we got together we discovered that was something we did pretty well and it took us until a second or third album before we realized how important that was to our sound but um you know in the beginning people knew us as kind of a funk dance band a jam band really mm-hmm. because we would go play these clubs in college towns and and you know do a couple hour long sets and um you know, every song was long. 
with a lot of soloing and a lot of switching instruments and and um but well is that also like a function of, of playing like with little feet and similar bands well we hadn't played with them yet but we listened to them okay and but really from function of listening to to jazz but and to r&b more so and you know we got the name because we were playing um orleans because we were playing new orleans influenced music when we didn't have enough of our own songs to fill a set we were doing songs by the meters and alan toussaint and um neville brothers and and we're also doing reggae and um you know different cooler you know caribbean music so it's um it's a combination of things we were finding our identity but but people who heard us first would dance with me because that was the first big hit we had we let there be music was in the top 40 and then dancing with me went in the top 10 so um or top five depending on which trade paper you looked at mm-hmm. and um you know people heard that and they didn't know anything about our r&b reggae history and and the funkier stuff we did on our first album and well actually all the albums we did some pretty funky stuff <laughs> but um even waking and dreaming the album was still the one that had songs like what i need that were white suburban guys playing a you know an r&b groove and you know a lot of kind of muscular bass and guitar licks that the songs were built around half moon was built around kind of a funk guitar like uh so but what the harmony blends with me and the hoppin brothers um became to many people the signature sound of, of orleans I just want to jump back one more to, to one more thing, like to, to the pre-Orleans days. And, and uh, Wells Kelly, who had worked on, um, he 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 uh, worked with um, King Harvest at one point. Do I have that correct? Yeah, and, and Wells' brother Sherman Kelly wrote yeah. uh, "Dancing in the Moonlight," the song that was the big hit for King Harvest. Uh, Wells and I worked together. He played on my solo record uh, "Action" in uh, 1970. Uh, before a couple of years before Orleans started and I had done a bunch of recording sessions and I was a hired gun guitar player uh, in the recording studios of New York for a while. And I'd worked with Wells on a few sessions where he was playing drums and then um, he and Larry and I got together. It was another long story that I won't inflict on you now, <laughs> but, uh, but we started playing together in December of uh, uh, 71 and then 70. January 72, we played our first together as, uh, as Orleans. So, uh, and then uh, Lance Hoppen joined us uh, nine months later as, as our bass player and another terrific voice. So, uh, yeah, Wells is a spectacular drummer, and all the drummers we've had since him marvel at his playing and, in some instances, have a hard time learning how to do what he did. Um, to create the feel on several songs. Yeah, but I think that's that's actually kind of important. It, it, is I, I think people underrate drummers sometimes as in in that respect, where where they are working to really to support the music and and not necessarily getting especially flashy. But then you go in and you dig a little deeper and you listen. You're like, wow, this guy's actually doing something kind of complicated. But it's it's. It's, it, they're not overdoing it to the point where where 
they're taking over the record. But once in a while, you'll just like catch a little fill or some little bit that they do. Yeah. And you're like, wow, that's really cool. That's, that's yeah. neat. It's understated. And at the same time, it really elevates the whole thing. But I, I also bring that up because of King Harvest. Uh, just oh, This was actually about 50 episodes ago for me. Uh, was I spoke about uh, I, Dancing in the Moonlight. And in my research, I, I noticed that a lot of people don't know that it's performed by King Harvest. And, you know, that makes sense because King Harvest kind of broke up before the song really hit big. So you do the Google searches and you know how Google works where it does that predictive text thing. And so like a lot sure. of a lot of wrong answers pop up as you start to type. And so there were people who think that like Van Morrison sang the song and some people thought, <laughs> you know, they, you know, that kind of thing. And Elvis Costello was like a, a common guess, which is like kind of a bad guess, I guess. But <laughs> but I, I think the, the one that kind of struck me was that people thought James Taylor had sung the song. And I thought, well, that's well, kind of peculiar. Well, he might have. I don't know. I'll ask him. Yeah, but, but, I, but, I, but here's the thing. And then what happened was I heard a recording of um, of Orleans playing Dancing in the Moonlight. Right. And this would have been in the late 70s. And I was like, my God, that guy sounds like James Taylor. No wonder it's like, it's got like a real, the, 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 the video that I saw in it appeared to be like a concert shot. Right. It, it, I was like, this sounds a little bit like James Taylor. I can understand where people are coming from when they make that error is because when Orleans plays it, it's got a real James Taylor vibe to it. Yeah. And a Jimmy Buffett vibe. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the Sherman Kelly wrote that song, uh, when he was living on St. Croix. And uh, I actually cut Dancing in the Moonlight in 1970 uh, at Bearsville Studios in Woodstock, New York. And I think Wells was playing drums on that at that point. Uh, but and uh, before Orleans, Larry Hoppin and Wells and Sherman Kelly were at different times in a band called Buffalongo mm -hmm. that was in Ithaca, New York, and based in Ithaca. And they recorded Dancing in the Moonlight. And... Um, you know, King Harvest did a great version, and Sherman was in that band, and Wells for a while was in that band as well. And that was the first big hit with it. We actually uh, cut it and named one of our albums uh, after it. Right. And, uh, you know, so there are a lot of good versions. I think Hootie and the Blowfish did it, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Um, so Darius uh, Rucker and crew. And um, so, yeah, it's a great song. Okay. Now, um, it was in, I want to say about 77 that you decided you wanted to leave the band and, and do, go solo. Do I have that? Uh, yeah, we had, you know, we had, as like a lot of bands, you know, people say being in a band is like being married to four other guys. And um, it's, sometimes it's hard to see, and I think all of us at that age, uh, and at that point, we had a hard time seeing um, how important it was what we had built. And um, and I was lo looking to do some uh, songs that were a little further afield from where Orleans was headed uh, in terms of aiming for those hit top 40 songs. Um, nothing wrong with top 40 songs, but uh, I wanted to do some more experimental kind of stuff. So, so I wound up... Uh, making a couple solo records and then a couple John Hall band records. And then um, getting back with Orleans in the mid-80s to uh, 
to record in Nashville, actually, and do a kind of a country crossover record uh, with Tony Brown and David Hungate producing. Tony, who played uh, piano with Elvis, actually, mm-hmm. and with Emmylou Harris, and David Hungate, who was the bass player from Toto. And they wound up, uh, both of them working for MCA Records in Nashville and, and producing our uh, Grown Up Children album. I guess part of that is, is, is also, it, it's more it became more common, I guess, into the next decade in the eighties where you would have a band where, where, where members would just go off and do their own project and then return to the band itself. And, and I guess that just really wasn't much of a thing in the sixties and seventies. It was like, if this guy is going to go and do a solo album, well, that's it for the band. And it, it seemed to be the mentality. So it's like, well, if, if, you know, I, I I think about this like you know if only right if if John had been allowed to do his solo album and could he have returned to the Beatles if George was allowed to do his thing, could the Beatles have conceivably stayed together? And it's like because and and I read a similar kind of feel in your book where it was like the band members themselves were starting to feel the constriction of the band, and it seemed like the only way to do that was to just break up altogether rather than to let individual players do their own project and then come back. Yeah. You know, it would have been nice if we had a therapist <laughs> or, or, or if one of our, you know, our managers or the producer, Chuck Plotkin, who I love and who did a great job producing us, but one of them should have sat us down and said, you guys don't realize like how much work it took, how many people worked to get you to this point and how much money was spent on your behalf to get you to this point. So how about if this year, John makes a side album that's a solo record next year, Larry will make his solo record. And, but in the meanwhile, we'll keep doing Orleans records. Mm -hmm. It would Mm -hmm. have been smart for somebody to say that, but you know, we were young and hot headed. And I get, but but what I'm saying is I don't think that was really like, that would have been anybody's approach at that point. It wasn't until I I think maybe like in the eighties when, when Mick Jagger went off and did a couple of solo albums and the Rolling Stones kept cranking along. And, and then similarly with Genesis and, and Phil Collins, you know, it was like Peter Gabriel left the band. That was a thing. But, but when Phil Collins wanted to make a sing a solo album, he did a solo album, but then he came back to Genesis and they did some Genesis stuff and it wasn't right. necessarily, you know, a cataclysm, like the band is over kind of situation. It just, I guess what just wasn't done then. And so it was like, if you're going to, I never well, thought of that. Adios. Yeah, I, I never thought of that before, but yeah, maybe it was the time period. So, um, but anyway, we wound up getting back together as Orleans in the eighties and yes. I've been, you know, doing various projects outside of Orleans since then, but I've always, you know, come back to playing with, uh, with Orleans. And, um, this time, I mean, I was in Congress and the other guys were very, um, helpful and, you know, did a couple of fundraisers for my campaigns and, and, um, and always said, you know, if you want, anytime you want to come back, you're welcome. And I actually didn't wind up getting back in the band for a couple of reasons. One of them being health issues I needed to take care of. I didn't get back into the band until after Larry passed away in 2012. Mm-hmm. But, um, but we've been, you know, working together since then and making, you know, we made records in the nineties and in the two thousands and, and we're working on one now. And, uh, so it's, it's all, uh, a work in progress and, and, 
you know, we'll, we'll see where it goes. It's uh, we're all surprised. I mean, Lance and I talk about this a lot and, and the fact, you know, when we started out with Orleans, none of us imagined we'd still be doing it in 50 years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's something to celebrate. Sure. Absolutely. Okay. So let's, let's the two of us leave Orleans briefly and, and talk about your, your, your time as a, as an activist an environmental activist, and then uh, your, your life in politics. Sure. Well, I, uh, you know, the first, issue I got directly involved in was um, nuclear power. And that was because the New York State Power Authority announced that they were going to build a, uh, a nuclear plant six miles north of where we lived, where my baby daughter was sleeping in her crib in Saugerties, New York. Um, uh, there was a plant on the Hudson River that was in the draw- on the drawing board. And in fact, they'd already spent $150 million of ratepayers and taxpayers' money buying the land, putting in the roads and the surveying stakes and the meteorological testing tower and, and contracted with Babcock and Wilcox for the uh, reactor, which happened to be the same design as the Three Mile Island reactor. Oh, okay. And, and so, uh, but I had, you know, gone to some hearings. I had a neighbor who was a Vietnam vet. And I trusted about a lot of stuff, including environmental stuff. And he came over with a stack of papers one night and said, read this, you know, and I did. I wound up going to hearings with him. I went to one hearing with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and the New York State Power Authority. And uh, I came home just feeling like they're not listening. These people are smoking cigars or pipes or something. It was back when you could smoke in public (laughs) meetings. And so they were sitting up there with their wingtip shoes, shoes and their suits on and their feet on the table sometimes and smoking while people got up and said, you know, I absolutely don't want this here. You know, what about the waste? What about the possibility of terrorism? What about the possibility of a leak or a meltdown? And uh, and they just were like, next. And uh, But anyway, so I came home from that and I wrote the song Power that night. And then um, got involved with nuclear stuff. And then, you know, did the, you know, was involved with the Muse concerts and a bunch of other benefits, uh, uh, to raise money for safe energy, you know, alternative energy education uh, around the country. And uh, and wound up making a Jackson Brown and Bonnie Raitt and Graham Nash and I were the four on the board, musicians on the board of Muse. And we, uh, uh, we wound up uh, kind of at the last minute before those five nights of concerts at the garden happened, uh, uh, signing contracts for a recording and a film that Warner Brothers made. Um, and it was amazing the way it came together at the last minute and, and worked. Um, so after that, I, I had a taste of uh, flexing a muscle, a political muscle or environmental activist muscle. And and after that, it's like dust settled a little bit and I was just doing my, my work, you know, musical work. And, and Ulster County, New York announced they were going to build a giant incinerator and landfill on our last undeveloped farm in the town, the Winston farm. And um, I had to drive my daughter past that farm to get to school, you know, or bring her home from school. And uh, it would have been 200,000 tons of garbage a year for 20 years. And two uh, incinerators with smokestacks 315 feet tall, which is where the dioxin would start coming out. Right. And, uh, you know, it was just something I didn't want. 
and that a lot of my neighbors didn't want either. I think you so need to I talk was, about the balloon. <laughs> oh, the, oh, yeah, fluid balloon, yeah. a weather balloon <laughs> up to 315 feet to show people in the area how tall those smokestacks would be. And, and, uh, and uh, they were calling from across the river, east side of the Hudson River, and from way out west in Orange County and Dutchess County and Ulster County saying, you know, I can see it from here. It would have been by far the tallest structure in Ulster County. And um, more importantly, I think, well, not only would have been spewing out toxins, but but would have meant that, that the town would have tilted toward dirty industry that nobody would have wanted to build nice housing near it or uh, put in any kind of upscale businesses. Um, actually, after we stopped the plant, and that was partly why I got elected to county legislature, my first political office was that I'd been involved with, was in the middle, actually, of, of trying to stop this this incinerator and giant landfill from coming in. And uh, and so people in the town just decided that they wanted me to run. And I did, and I won, and I spent, like, you know, two years in a legislative position. Didn't run for re-election because I, I just basically wanted to get back to my musical career. And... Um, and then a few years later, you know, ran for the school board when my daughter was in high school and had freshman, sophomore, and junior years on austerity because the voters kept rejecting the budget. Yeah. I, uh, I ran with the goal of getting at least her senior year on a regular normal budget with smaller class sizes and advanced placement languages or math or what have you. And, and then... Um, and I, I think it's I think it's worth mentioning here because a lot of people don't experience this. But in in at least in my area of New York State, every town was its own school district, right? And yeah. and and you know and like you know I live in Baltimore now, so the city is a district. Every county right. is a district. So you don't have the same granular level of dealing with with the school budgets that you do in New York. I don't know if they still do it that way, but it was, well, yeah, was certainly they do the with case the, 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 then. Cities in New York like New York City or Buffalo or Albany had one district for that city. But when you get onto the smaller, you know, less populated areas, um, then it's every town is its own district pretty much. So, um, and I, the thing I like about school board was it's um, the purest form of democracy in the sense that you run not as a member of indiv an individual, not in, as a member of a party, but you run as an individual. So, mm -hmm. You know, I might have one set of allies on this issue or this vote and a totally different set of allies that I would vote with on a different issue. So, you know, that's I, we're probably too far gone as a country for that. But uh, but in a way, if there, you know, if if it were possible to win without being attached to a party, it might defuse some of the uh, some of the uh, conflict that's going on. Mm -hmm. All right. So so how did you make that leap from the local government to you know, the bigger state thing. Well, I, you know, I went back into play music and I was, you know, for some years I was, uh, made another record with Orleans, a couple of records with Orleans and, um, and at least one more, maybe two more solo records. And, uh, lived in Nashville for a few years and came back up. And when I moved back moved instead to Dutchess County, instead of Ulster County, where I had a different representative. And I looked into what she was doing, and it turned out she had voted for the war in Iraq, and she voted for the drilling 
oil drilling in the Arctic Wildlife Preserve, which both of which I thought were bad ideas. And um, so I thought I would, you know, try to, you know, get somebody else in that seat. And I met with four other candidates for the Democratic primary and had coffee or lunch with them all and talked to them about stuff. And wound up feeling that I might be a better candidate and a better representative. So I ran in the primary and I beat them all and, and wound up uh, squeaking by in a general election. Uh, I think that first election was um, one and a half percent. Wow. Uh, got reelected in 08 by a larger margin than that and then lost in 2010. Uh, one of the reasons I lost, not the only one, I'm sure, but one of them was that the Citizens United decision allowed uh, corporations and PACs, super PACs and billionaires to dump unlimited money for or against any candidate into any election. And so in the last two weeks of my 2010 campaign, five million bucks was dropped into TV advertising to defeat me uh, by Glenn Beck Super PAC and Carl Rowe Super PAC and United States Chamber of Commerce Super PAC. And, and uh, it worked. <laughs> but it's a good thing it did because I... I did have some health challenges that I needed to deal with. And if I'd won re-election in 2010, I might have, uh, I might not be alive today. Wow. Was that, was that serious? Yeah. Yeah. I had, uh, I had an aneurysm that, uh, could very easily have killed me Oh my! Uh, and wound up thanks to not being, I mean, it's the kind of thing if I was so focused on work that, um, I might've put it off dealing with it. And, uh, and I'm, I'm aware now of how serious that was. And my doctor told me if I hadn't gotten a fix that, um, the only way I would survive a rupture of that aneurysm was if I happened to be walking by the ER doors at a hospital, that even a, an ambulance ride would take too long, uh, to save me with surgery. So, so I got that done. And, um, and also got back to writing songs and playing guitar and, you know, being a musician again, which I'm grateful you know, to do that. I, I never thought that I was the only person who could represent those 650,000 people in my district. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I just, I accomplished a couple of things while I was there. And, and I like the people who are ser serving in the two districts now, the new 19th and uh, the 18th, which is my old part of my old district. So uh, I'm glad that, you know, that passed it off to some good people. All right, cool. And let me take you, 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 you've written that probably your proudest moment as a politician was your very first vote when you were able to cast the vote for Nancy Pelosi as a speaker of the house. So that one aside, what would you put like near the top of the list? Well, um, I was as chair of the subcommittee on veterans disabilities. I was able to write, I was the prime author of a bill uh, the Veterans Claims Modernization Act of 2008, which passed unanimously every Republican in the Senate and the House and every Democrat in the Senate and the House, and the House voted yes. And President George W. Bush signed into law and called it good government. And I just, um, I was shocked that everybody agreed <laughs> and, and supported my bill, but it was also, you know, what it did was at a time when the Iraq and Afghanistan wars were at their peak, and we were seeing a flood of veterans coming back with amputations and, you know, limbs blown off by an IED or traumatic brain injuries, PTSD, injuries that kept them from being able to work um, or even sometimes hold a conversation. 
um, at the time, they were forced to come back and then before they could get disability pay, get a letter from their commander or from their buddies in their unit saying, yes, uh, so-and-so was in my personnel carrier when we got hit by a bomb and blown up in the air and landed upside down. And that's how he got his PTSD or that's how he got his brain injured or that's how he lost his leg. And uh, you can't ask people who are in that condition to even write the letter to their buddies or to their commander. And maybe those guys are over in the, in the theater still in Iraq or Afghanistan. So, so what my bill did, it was said, said that, um, that uh, from the day that a veteran presents himself or someone else presents their paperwork for them to the VA with a diagnosis of PTSD or whatever, the obvious injuries uh, um, that are, it's, I think the language of the bill of the law says um, uh, undisputed uh, disabling injury, meaning you go over with four limbs, you come back with three. Or you go over saying you come back and you can't hardly talk, um, let alone hold a job. I mean, there was an epidemic at that point of suicide, bankruptcy, homelessness, and divorce among our veterans, returning veterans. And, you know, it's not totally fixed now, but that law fixed a lot of it. And that's probably the thing I'm proudest of. I voted for it, of course, but all the work that went into making that happen, I'm, I'm, I'm proudest of. Uh, of all the things I did in Congress. I, th- I think the big surprise is not not just that everybody agreed on it, but that everybody was willing to vote for it besides. We get so many issues these days where you you hear people on one side of the aisle saying, yes, they're absolutely right. We need thus and such a thing. But when it comes down to the vote, it's like, no, I can't support that because, you know, I need to be obstructionist today. <laughs> well, because I don't want to give the other side a win. Right, right, right. You know, And uh, I mean, I wasn't worried about given President George W. Bush a win, uh, you know, it was more important to take care. I mean, I was seeing in my office, my staff were seeing uh, and hearing from veterans who had these problems just in my own district. So, so it was not, and I also have family members uh, who are veterans and, and at least one who was at active duty at the time. So, uh, you know, it was, it was personal and uh, I didn't serve myself in uniform. I was, I went to the Baltimore Halliburton Avenue, uh, uh, induction center mm-hmm. when my number was called in the Vietnam draft and they rejected me for a couple of different physical reasons, uh, medical reasons. But I feel like I got to serve all those years later by being on that committee and doing that kind of work. Well, congratulations on that. So Thank you. post, post, uh, post congressional career, um, there, w- there was a period of time where you, I guess you were, you, you know, taking care of your health at that point. Um, but then, um, Larry Hoppin died and you wound up rejoining the band. Yeah. Uh, unfortunate, you know, premature passing in my opinion. And, um, but yeah, Lance called me, uh, we had, I had played with them a couple times, uh, on stage, but I wasn't in the regular band doing all the shows. Um, and then, um, uh, Lance called me and told me the bad news and then about his brother dying and then said, um, you know, we, we have these shows coming up for the rest of the year and they're contracted already and everybody else needs to work. Everybody else in the band needs to work. So can you do them with us? And I said, of course. And then, so we wound up finishing that year 2012 out and then, you know, just kept at it since then. And, um, and we've made, you know, in that time, we've made a couple records and, and, uh, and working on two more. So, uh, 
you know, I'm glad I'm glad that worked out. It's too bad that uh, Larry's not here to share it with us. There was a period, and it wasn't that long ago, where you did actually announce you were done. You were done with the music business, and you turned out to be a big fat liar on that one, didn't you? I I didn't announce it. Oh, you didn't? No, no. Somebody else announced it for me. Uh, what I said was, I'm in the hospital. Oh. And I need, and I need for now, for the foreseeable future, not to be going on the road. Uh, well, in particular, not to fly. Uh, you know, the pressure changes uh, on an airplane can have an effect on your heart and your blood pressure, and and uh, how hard you you know how much oxygen there's in your blood. They they pressurize these airplanes to, uh, I think it's eight thousand feet. And I've had altitude sickness before, and I've had uh, uh, heart problems that were brought on by playing a gig at the top of Copper Mountain, Colorado, for Mm -hmm. instance, uh, where you're probably close to 8,000 feet. Got to be, probably more than that. But I think that's the tallest or one of the tallest peaks in Colorado. Taller than, it's higher than Vail. But, uh, so anyway, we're on a plane, they only pressurize it to 8,000 feet. The, the oxygen content in the air is the same as being on Copper Mountain. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was experiencing some um, symptoms because of that, and my doctors forbade me to fly until they were sorted out. So so they're sorted out. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been flying with no issues, so, so that's good. I'm glad I wasn't permanently retired. All right, cool. And, and tell me about the new album, the, the, the one you just released. Sure, reclaiming my time. That's uh, mostly songs that were written in the last year and ten months. Um, my buddy uh, John Paul Daniel, who co-wrote "Alone Too Long" and about half of this record with me, um, uh, lost his wife of thirty-five years. Uh, she passed away about um, about twenty months ago, and uh, the day I, I was came down to Nashville to be around for the visitation and the funeral and to be there for my friend, you know, and, and the, the night after the funeral, we wrote the song mystic blue, which is on this record. Mm-hmm. It's about, about them and their, how they met in the relationship and everything. And then we just kept writing. We wrote, it's all up and down from here. And we wrote, we wrote fear shark's wife and we wrote uh, world on fire. Uh, and, uh, you know, a whole bunch of songs and he played bass on a lot of them and uh, guitar on a couple. And so, that kind of started the ball rolling. I already had a couple of the tracks that were recorded on, uh, as part of an earlier CD that didn't get much promotion or visibility because uh, it was on my own little vanity record label. Mm-hmm. And uh, now that there's a real record company involved, Sunset Boulevard Records, um, I'm, uh, I put those songs on here and remixed, remastered versions, and in a couple cases with another instrument added to them but um but you know i just want i thought they were the songs are strong enough they deserve another hearing so um that's that's the content of this record it's a um written with a bunch of different writers uh, sharon vaughn uh and i wrote the first song together i think of you which sharon is a hall of fame songwriters written probably 50 or 60 number one country hits as well as some pop hits and she writes with Swedish uh, artists and producers uh, for the last bunch of years. Now she's been going over there and writing pop songs with them. And, uh, but she's a terrific lyricist and we did, I think of you together 
Uh, Steve Werner, uh, you know, is a number one, you know, country artist and Grammy winner himself. And not just a great singer, but a great guitar player uh, who uh, traveled with Chet Atkins and, and Chet was kind of his mentor guitar-wise. And Chet, uh, actually when Chet passed away, his widow gave Chet's gut string guitar to Steve and Steve plays it on another sunset on my, on my new record and, uh, and sings a duet with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, does. Um, and that's, you know, one of a couple of songs that, that call out to the, what somebody told me is trop rock, which, <laughs> meaning like singing about beaches and islands. And I oceans. get that. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and then, um, Dara Williams, who I've done, um, a bunch of environmental benefit, uh, benefit concerts with and uh, who helped raise money for my campaign and lives in the Hudson Valley in Putnam County, uh, uh, sang a duet with me on uh, Save the Monarch, which I wrote, I wrote that song myself, but it's a hymn about endangered species and the environment. And, and uh, you know, I was brought up with in a Catholic family, a very devout Catholic family. My little brother was a priest. My mom had a master's in divinity and you know, I'm not a uh, practicing Catholic now, but I but I learned a lot of things, a lot of important things from my upbringing there. And one of them is to be to try to be a good steward of the earth. And so uh, the song "Save the Monarch" is written so initially it sounds like "God Save the Queen," but yeah, it's really yeah, it, 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 I I I caught that actually. We're we're listening to. I love that song by the way. And 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 and, and and yes, that there that there is that kind of dual thing at first where you're not a hundred percent sure whether it's you're singing about it, whether you're singing save, it, right. But but at first king, you you it's, Condor, it's save not a hundred percent the honeybees, right? And uh, <laughs> and so the you know and Dar sings great on it and yes. uh, in the bridge. I mean, there's a lot of scriptural references in that song and mm-hmm. the bridge. It says, uh, it has been written, you gave us dominion over things that walk the earth, swim the sea or soar the sky. Forgive your people who know not what they do. Lift the veil from our eyes. And that's, you know, I've worked on that, lifting my own veil and also trying to lift other people's veils from their eyes about environmental stuff since the 70s. And, you know, we, we've had songs on the Orleans records and on my solo records that talk about those topics. And, and so this is continuing that same theme. So you talked about working with Steve Warner. You talked about Dar Williams and right in between those two tracks on the CD is the return of your ex-wife as a writing partner. Johanna, <laughs> right. Johanna Hall, uh, Johanna and I hadn't written together in about 25 years. And we, um, it's a pretty personal thing, you know, a pretty intimate thing writing together. And we just, when we first separated in a divorce, we just were not feeling comfortable doing that again. And mm-hmm. gradually, uh, you know, over the years, we got to be closer, better friends. And now we just have a great relationship. We have a hundred some songs together and a daughter and a granddaughter together. So uh, there's a lot of reasons to be on good terms. And uh, But anyway, so we, we started writing now more than ever with Johanna's title and her idea for the chorus of the song. Uh, lyrically, and started in February of 2020, right before the lockdown happened, <laughs> and uh, and it wound up becoming, you know, the course uh, now more than ever we have to stand together to, to weather these stormy times. Now more than ever, and uh, and it could be about a relationship. It could be about 
all of us as a society or, you know, groups of people, even countries getting together to weather these storms. We certainly have challenges enough uh, in this world that be a lot better for everybody if we were able to not be tribal about everything and us against them or this country against that country. And, you know, uh, I know that's a, a naive and a quaint idea in this day and age, but, uh, but it's true. And when the Navy started releasing these videos of their pilots talking to, talking to each other about the UFOs they're seeing, mm-hmm. which has been happening since the 60s, but just recently started coming out and, and videos being shown for the first time of the encounters. And, uh, you know, if we as a, as a planet, as the, the humans who live on this planet together, decided that maybe we should try to, like, stop fighting amongst ourselves because there's something bigger going on out there that could threaten us. Hasn't done anything that we know of yet, but there's that. And then climate change is the same thing. Climate change is something that is threatening all of us and has already killed a lot of people and will wind up killing way more people than this pandemic, by the way, if we don't do something about it. This is going to be, you know, good part of Long Island and New York City and Baltimore and and every other seaport is going to be underwater. Sure. If we don't stop the sea level rise that is baked in right now. So we better get cracking on it. And, and that's the kind of thing that we should be doing together with all the countries in the world. And, and so that song is about that. Um, Johanna and I are, you know, working on some other songs and glad we're able to write together again. Well, you anticipated my next question. I was wondering if this was the beginning of just a resumption of the two of you working together. Well, yeah, I mean, I think so. I, I have a lot of other writing partnerships going on, which will also continue. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, a couple of songs actually on this record. Well, there's one called Lessons that was written by Johanna and Joan Almaster and me. And uh, we've written about three dozen songs with Joanelle, and, and she's a great singer, by the way. Kind of a white soul singer from Nashville who uh, has worked with a lot of big, you know, big names as a backup singer or as a guest um, singer. But um, I'm actually doing a show uh, in July with uh, Joan Almaster and Friends show in Nashville. Um, where I'm one of the friends, but, uh, but yeah, so lessons is a song about the lessons life teaches you. I needed to learn patience. I wound up in a traffic jam, you know, leaning, learned to, to handle money as it slipped right through my hands. It just goes on with these, with these lessons that we all, I think have felt. And, um, I wanted to get more independent till I found myself alone. Yeah, that was another song that really, really struck me. Like, for whatever reason, it hit me hard. And, the, you know, the weird thing is when when uh, when your people sent me the, the – they sent me a download of, of the album. And for whatever reason, it didn't load in the correct order. That was the first song that I heard. And I was okay. like, wow, this is a cool opener. I like this song. And it was like, if all the lyrics are going to be this good, this is, this is going to be a great experience listening well, to this you. album. So, I yes, I had a ton of fun listening to this even if I didn't quite listen to it in track order the first time around. That's okay. That's what I hear people talk to me about sequencing and say, it doesn't matter. Oh, what it sequence does. Doing. It matters to me because, you know, I want to listen the way the artist intended. If I buy somebody else's record, I don't put it on shuffle. I listen to it in the order they meant it to be listened to. But, but you know, I'm glad you like lessons. And, and a lot of people are talking about that song and maybe the next track we focus on after Alone Too Long. Mm-hmm. 
All right. And I heard tell, I don't have a lot of detail, so I'm hoping to get a little bit of the scoop on you for, for, from you from this one, is that Orleans is working on a Christmas album? We are. We're working on a record. Uh, we've never made a Christmas album. We, we recorded a song, uh, New Star Shining, which you know has been out, been released before, but it was also a big hit by uh, Ricky Skaggs and James Taylor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a duet on it. Um, and there was a video and everything done for that um, back in the '80s, I think it was late '80s. But um, but so this is our version on this Christmas record, plus a song, the Orleans new version of "Quiet Place," a song I recorded on my uh, uh, my solo album back in I think it was 1999. <clears throat> and then there's a bunch of original stuff that's never been released before. Songs by other songwriters that we just like and put on this record. It's, uh, uh, I think it's going to be really good and really fun. We're having a good time putting it together. That should be out in October. And then we're also working on our 50th anniversary record to be out early next year. It's hard to believe, but it'll be 50 years in January since our first show as Orleans. I think it's hard to think back on 50 years of anything. <laughs> <laughs> I remember we were saying, don't trust anybody over 30. But... Uh, Anyway, yeah. good, it's a good, it's good news. It's better beats the alternative. I should, by the way, when you're talking about drummers, I just wanted to say how lucky I am to be able to play with the musicians on my new record. But really, a lot of the musicians through my career that I played with, I'm really proud and grateful to have worked with. But on this record, uh, most of the drums were played by uh, Sean Paddock, who's been playing with Kenny Chesney for a couple of decades, and um, backup vocals uh, included. Some by uh, John Cowan, who was in Newgrass Revival and more recently has been in the Doobie Brothers for the uh, last 15, 16 years. And uh, Andrea Zahn, who uh, is an artist in her own right, a terrific singer and fiddle player, who has been playing with James Taylor on the road, singing and playing fiddle with him for about 15 or 16 years. And, um, and uh, Jay Collins on saxophone on a couple of tracks, including Alone Too Long. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jay played on uh, records and tours with uh, Dukes of September, Donald Fagan, Mike McDonald, and Buzz Skaggs. With the Allman Brothers, you know, he's worked with a lot of notable, uh, terrific artists, and it was just a dream to play with. And um, did his part remotely because of the pandemic, of course, from his house in Caskill, New York. And uh, so, oh, I think the, oh, Peter O'Brien, who played drums on, I think, four songs on this record, played with Orleans. I recorded th- on three of our albums, including our live album, Bearsville Theater, and toured a bunch with us. Uh, so, the, you know, this underpinning of, uh, of great players and, uh, and singers that I am really grateful for. Fabulous. Okay, now where can people find you and or Orleans on the web? Well, you can find me at johnhallmusic.com, and uh, my schedule's up there as well as Orleans' schedule. Right now, it's mostly Orleans, because uh, uh, I, I don't have the John Hall solo gigs are going to be booked around the Orleans ones that are being rebooked now after our 2020 tour schedule got completely canceled and postponed, like everybody else's tour did. Uh, but so johnhallmusic.com. And for more information on Orleans, you can go to orleansonline.com. All right. Yeah, I'm looking. Oh, you can, 
you can find the record if you were looking for you know a copy of the CD or yes. eventually it'll be vinyl. It's not vinyl yet because the pressing plants are all backed up and there's a shortage of vinyl, uh, as you might have heard. But um, but it's available through Amazon or Target or you know any of the big chain stores. It's also if there's a record store near you, uh, which gets to be rarer nowadays, uh, you know it's available through them or as a stream or a download from Amazon or Apple Music or um, Pandora, Spotify, etc. So uh, it's it's pretty easy to find. Yeah, well, Baltimore's still a pretty good record town, so I can I can probably find it, find that around. I'm actually waiting for No Nukes to come back into print so I can get Me a too. copy of that guy. <laughs> yeah, because that well, I bought a copy of it from Japan, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it needs to be reissued. It's just the formats keep changing and. First, they said a cassette was going to ruin it for songwriters and bands because everybody could copy them and didn't have to buy them. Remember that? Yeah. I and then it actually. was, and then it was, oh, the digital these these DAT tapes are going to ruin it, and you know, and then it's CDs are going to ruin it, and then, uh, you know, and it does in a way, but it just keeps changing. And thanks to the Millennium Copyright Act and the Music Modernization Act. Uh, Laws that have been passed, you know, by Congress and signed by some president, um, they are all now uh, helping songwriters get more of what they deserve. It's not quite the one thousands of a cent per play that it was there for a while. Right. So that's all good. Yeah. Well, no nukes. It is available actually as an MP3 download from uh, Amazon, uh-huh. so you can still get it. You know that that I don't know. That feels like one. I want to have some physical media in my hands though. Me too. Yeah. yeah, I always like being able to read credits and and liner notes to any record. All righty. Um, is there anything else that I have not covered that you would like to talk about? Um. Well, yeah. Uh, if anybody wants to uh, <clears throat> check out uh, the video for "Alone Too Long," it's up on um, on John Hall Music mm-hmm. on YouTube, and. Uh, and there's also a Facebook page, John Hall Music, John Hall Band, John Hall Music Facebook page. And, uh, you know, there's I always have kind of a running conversation going on with people through that. And, um, you know, the latest news about what's going on is there. So uh, all those ways to to uh, find out more information than you ever wanted to know about me or Orleans. <laughs> Terrific. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks for having me on and uh, have a great rest of your day and look forward to talking to you about the Christmas record. Great. How about that? John Hall, folks. We spent an hour together and I feel like I could easily talk with him for another hour. Check out his new album, Reclaiming My Time. Uh, The book is called Still the One, A Rock and Roll Journey to Congress and Back. And it is genuinely a fun read covering the funky twists and turns that got him where he is today. Go to his website, johnhallmusic.com, for ordering information and tour dates, both solo and with Orleans. They are constantly adding dates to the calendar, so check back often, because if they're not in your area, that probably means they're not there yet. And that, my friend, is a full lid on another edition of How Good It Is. If you're enjoying the show, please take the time to share it with someone. Share it with your friends. Share it with your enemies. Maybe they become your friends. And if you choose... 
you can support the show over at patreon.com slash how good it is. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at howgooditis. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod or you can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you might find a few extra bits. And next time around, we're going to find out how good it is when we examine David Bowie's relationship with one Major Tom. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. How good it is. Okay, I've seen my playback statistics, so it's pretty much just you and me now. How good it is is a labor of love and a lot of fun to produce, and I'm happy to see it growing, but the fact is, it costs me money to put this show out on the web, and as the number of listeners goes up, so do the costs. I pledged from the beginning that I would keep this an ad-free show, which means I'm bearing most of the costs myself. I hate asking for money, mostly because I'm not very good at it, but I'm asking you to consider becoming a patron of the show. For $5 a month, you would be helping me to maintain some of the costs of hosting the show and the website and all the subscription services that I belong to in order to get audio clips and research materials. If just 2% of my listeners become supporters of the show, that would just about cover most of my costs. And for that support, you'd get the weekly newsletter that appears every week, whether there's a new show or not. Please take a look at patreon.com slash how good it is, or if you'd rather not go through Patreon, Email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com and I'll outline some alternatives for you. And thanks for your help. How good.